0: everybody, welcome, I'm Jade Scott, this is Growth RX, and today we are joined with Helena Player, all the way from Victoria, amidst the pending lockdowns that we have here. A big shout out to those of you who are watching from Sydney, who are going through lockdowns, it's just a bit of a nightmare all around Australia at the moment and, and if not, if you are watching internationally, my heart goes out to everybody who is pivoting these crazy times at the moment. But today we are going to change the topic a little bit away from COVID which is lovely and talk about something that is very important I know to gel which is commonly known as and that is children, the treatment and management of children which we often don't hear too much about as a, as a, a scope of practice outside of what is paediatrics when it comes to babies and I guess those from you know zero to 12 months old or up to toddler 18 months. So that's what we're going to Cover today's, but I would like to introduce you first. Welcome, and let's hear a little bit more about you. Welcome for joining us. Thank you so much. So so excited to be here with you,
1: Jade, and sharing something so very close to my own heart. And I just yeah, I'm, I'm really pumped and excited for for our, our little session today.
0: Yeah. Now you are obviously you've got a keen interest in in children and the hearts of children. You are a business owner with three clinics across Melbourne, Victoria. Uh, Very, very passionate mentor when it comes to education. And I guess from my perspective, from the first moment that I saw you, you're certainly a big hearted practitioner. You wear your heart on your sleeve and you do go out of your way to help a lot of people. But I would love to know where your interest, I guess, as an allied health professional came when it comes to children and where that focus uh, grew from. Yeah,
1: absolutely, um, it's quite an interesting story, I think. I, I, I think um, things in life happen and they find us when they're meant to. So all the way back in high school, I wanted to do medicine and my my careers teacher said to me, you're not smart enough to get the score you need to get in. So re- rethink your priorities. And I, And I still to this day, like I can't believe she said that, but I think if that hadn't happened, I don't know if I'd end. Up, I would have ended up where I have. So I went on and did science at Melbourne. I was absolutely just miserable in my degree. And I worked in retail at the time and I had a beautiful lady that would come in and she, we would chit chat. And I think on this particular day, she said, what's wrong? You're not, you're not your chirpy self. I said, oh, I just feel lost. I don't know what I want to do with my life, but I don't want to do this. She said, come and meet my osteopath. Come to, come to my next session, come and meet him. I think it's something you would really love. And that, that's pretty much what happened. I, I went to her, ne- her, her next appointment and met him and um, amazing. Like I just, he was so passionate. He just loved what he did. And I've always had a real interest and passion for children. So I guess not just medicine, I want to be a paediatrician. But as time's gone on now and I reflect on that, and I realise how much I'm too soft. I don't think I could have handled that world. And 10 years, I've been in practice for almost 15. And a decade into clinical practice, I started seeing really sick kids, you know, kids with terminal illnesses. And I was. it took, I think, 10 years for me to... You know how you have that life prepares you and only gives you what you can handle? And I say this often to my, to the, to my guys that I mentor... You are sent the patients that you're ready and you're ready to handle and to be able to help. So um, my, my passion and my interest has always been kids. And on my very first day of osteo, we had um, Peter Parker come and speak. and I'll never forget. I sat there listening to him in just in utter awe. He, he was talking about his experience in the Romanian orphanages and the work he did with the children over there. And I just—I'll never forget that feeling that day on my first day of osteo, thinking, "Wow, I'm in the right place. I've finally worked out what I why, why I'm here and what I need to do. And working with children is something that is so very deep and close to my heart. And I'm finally here. And I'm whatever happens now, I know I'll get there. And 15 years later, what a journey it's been! It's just been incredible. And here I am."
0: Well, we were very grateful to have you. And when I did want to cover this topic, which I kind of, it's certainly a very valid topic on its own, but it sort of sits somewhere in the middle. There's a lot of people with a pediatric and babies focus, but what we find in clinic and in clinical practice is it's not uncommon to have a parent bring in a five-year-old or an eight-year-old that's fallen off the monkey bars or tripped over and sprained an ankle and even you know, depending on what industry you're in, it doesn't have to be a musculoskeletal complaint, which we're going to talk about a little bit more. Is a lot of the the pain um, it can transfer itself and can present in many many different ways. But I know just from talking to my team, there's a huge number of practitioners out there that it could be in their young twenties or you know you know early thirties who haven't really had that much exposure to children unless they're a parent or an aunt or the cool auntie or uncle themselves. There are some practitioners out there that quite genuinely are not confident with smaller children. And even though we learn a lot of, you know, stuff and we've got, you know, a very, very valid, credible background based upon our qualification, it sometimes doesn't equip you for a little chirpy five-year-old walking through the door because our communication is very, very different and I know that, you know, whilst I was still very capable, I wanted to build my confidence and I know that there's many others who fall into that category as well. So I'm hoping today will help with those practitioners or even just getting a different perspective from somebody with a wealth of knowledge and experience in this area because you did start off with the Happiness Code, doing some work with the Happiness Code, which we're gonna find out a little bit more, but you're also doing a lot of work with the Happy Hearts Tribe. So you do have this vested interest and I think that your level of communication, your knowledge in this area, that's what I wanna draw on today. And I do wanna help build the confidence in practitioners to be able to communicate more with children and talk differently to children about pain and transferring those diagnoses and educating not only them, but also their parents. And I do think it is valid and I'm hoping you'll agree with me because you're joining me here now, that we do need to approach children differently in private practice would you agree yeah absolutely
1: absolutely and we will go into all of that um as as we go in deeper.
0: So before i hand over to you because i know you've prepared some slides for us today and a fantastic webinar that people are here to watch not to hear us chatting but i'd like to know a little bit more about you so you do you have children of your own firstly I
1: do. I have two beautiful girls, 10 and 11, and I actually have a little 10 week old boy. So I'm hoping he doesn't have to make an appearance today, but we'll see. We'll see. And I guess, and I was, as I was preparing and like planning out the entire morning, so he won't need me for this hour. I thought this is just exactly what working with kids is like. You have to be so flexible and it just, you have to go with it. So
0: well, if he appears, um, we'll welcome him. Uh, And what about your favourite holiday destination?
1: Oh, Bali. I just can't wait to go back.
0: (laughs) I totally agree. And so, and what about favourite food, lastly? Favourite food. Oh,
1: I'd have to say chocolate. It just makes everything better. (laughs) Yes.
0: Okay. Well, without further ado, we are here to listen to you and learn from you. So I'll hand over to you to share your slides that you put together for us today and start our incredible webinar on the Treatment and Management Edge of Children, Communication, Care and Management. Thanks, Yelena. Thank you so much. So I've already shared a little bit about my
1: journey and how I ended up here. Um, I think I find it really fascinating these days where presenting complaints that come in through my door are so different to what I thought they would have been when I was a student and even in those early years of practice. And so I thought we'd start a little bit with more, more the musculoskeletal type things that we're seeing, but then what else comes into practice and in particular with, with, with children. So as Jade mentioned, I, I've worked um, with Happiness Co now for the last five years and it's a preemptive space, preemptive mental health space that I've worked in coaching and mentoring people through all kinds of different, different issues and different problems within their lives. So more in that mental health area. And as, as I've worked with, an, with patients all of these years, I realize there's so much more to, to patients than what we're taught at uni in terms of the actual physical and, and what they're coming in and presenting with. And I'm not sure if you can relate to this, but I really felt quite un- unprepared as a grad when faced with a person sitting in my room and everything else that comes in with them, all the baggage, all the things that they come into the room with, that's outside of just that presenting complaint. And it's no different for, for the children and the babies that come in to, come into the room as well. So that work, that working with people on that whole mental health side of things, really, I guess it exposed to me to just how important that mind-body connection is. And I would have said back when I graduated, it's all the body and a small percentage of it is the mind. But as time's gone on, I really feel very differently about that. I really feel so much more has to do with the mind and what's going on inside and then how that physically presents when, when, a, when a patient presents in, in our door and in our room. And when we're working with children in particular, it's, not, it's often not them, but that whole family dynamic that comes into that room and into our space that we have to manage and navigate and work our way through. And I think this is probably one of the biggest challenges of working with children. We're relying on someone else to speak up for them and tell us what's actually going on and just the very importance of the history and making sure we get as much information as we can from the parent or or the carer who it is that is in front of us to make the best clinical judgment that we can as to what, what is actually going on and what we're going to do about it and how we're going to be there for that little person in our room and for their family or whoever it is, whoever it is that's come into the space with them. And I guess from there I realized there's a gap. We need help these these parents and these people that we work that I was working with and even clinically I was seeing a lot of the time even parents have trouble connecting in and reaching their children in a way that they can feel really, truly deeply connected and understand Um, so much of our life. When you've got a, when you have little people in your life and the parents can probably relate to this is often, especially when they're quite young, you're just trying to work out what the hell's going on. What's wrong? What's wrong? How can I fix it? What do I need to do? And, children have a very distinctive way of, of communicating with us. And I guess from there, this is what's on the screen now, is where my my other heart project has come from, and that's Happy Hearts. And that's helping work with adults to deepen their connection with the children in their lives and really truly understand them and be able to communicate in a way that everyone feels feels seen, feels heard and feels understood. The three basic needs we all need from any relationship in our lives. And how we do anything is how we how we do everything. So again, the the need to, to feel seen, to feel heard and to feel understood and bringing that into the room when we have, regardless of the age of the patient in front of us, that's what they need from us and really being able to hold that space for them and helping them with that comes trust, it comes connection and it comes from there, from there we can work in the, in the space of health and finding the health. And ultimately, as, as an allied health practitioner, I think I know there's many different modalities within this group, but um, the heart, the hands are a direct connection to our heart. So how, what a gift we have. We get to connect our hearts with our hands to our patients and Children, especially when they're, not ver- they're non-verbal yet, they're not communicating, they're definitely communicating. They're amazing. They really, truly are. I, just, I really see it as such a gift to be able to work with children in this way and be able to help them in a way that maybe somebody else hasn't been able to in their lives yet when they come in in pain or in distress or whatever it is that's brought them into our room on, on the day. So we'll start here. We'll start with common things that we see in childhood. Um, we, a lot of, lot of the time between in those early childhood years, we're seeing things like coughs and respiratory issues that children suffer. These are the main things that, that they have going on in their, in their health and in their world and often things that parents come to us for help with or advice about when we're treating children. It's not just the, the bumps and the falls and the, and the sporting injuries. They have allergies, they have gut issues, they've had recurrent infections, whether it be ear infections or chest infections or or rashes and ear ear pain and ear infections. These are the the common things that we see um, when we're working in this younger demographic. And I guess before I really go into what I'd like to focus on, I just want to make sure that our history is as thorough as it can be because you don't want to miss anything. And often with children, the nasties come up in in quite surprising and scary ways. And I'll share a story with you about one. I guess we all have that case that haunts us and that we think about and we sometimes lose sleep over. And you, and I will share. I'll share that with you. And and how I guess this particular little girl, Mia. has has really shaped me as a practitioner and what she taught me through what she went through and what her family went through. So just making sure we're looking for these red flags and making sure we're ruling out any other cause for what could be going on with, with, with the patient on our table. So in children under than two, neurological symptoms can really come out in very different ways. It can be just being irritable or lethargic there can be developmental delays or regressions and changes in their head circumference and these are vague things and they're non-specific and often we see these things without any other underlying cause of of them or any red flags but they're things to be aware of and building that clinical picture through our history, through our differential diagnoses and making sure that our management is spot on. And if things are not responding, looking to see what else could be causing the issues. Headaches, headaches in young children, in children are also, we need to make sure we know exactly what is going on and why, because there are so many nasties that can cause headaches. We can see changes in gait, seizures, and. All different musculoskeletal defi- deficits and abnormalities. And these, you can see cranial nerve palsy, palsies, motor and sensory problems can all be a sign of severe malignant conditions. So making so- sure our, our assessment is also as thorough as possible to rule out any other underlying causes for, for these things that we're seeing. Musculoskeletally, we might, they might present with bone pain. It might be localized pain or generalized pain or spinal pain, which we see a lot. We see so much of this in allied health. Um, pathological fractures and, and masses are probably more obvious ways of seeing if, the, sorry, turn that off, um, if there is an underlying issue that this patient has come with. Oh, so, Mia, super Mia. Little two-year-old girl that I was seeing. I see she has two older sisters, and that there is a history of chronic asthma in this family. So Mia was being brought in with all kinds of musculoskeletal causes of chest pain and chest tightness and uh, breathing-related difficult difficulties. Every time she'd get a cold, she would she would have a lot of trouble with her breathing, and it was looking like there was asthma was also what was her path, unfortunately, in terms of what was causing her issues. And on this particular day, she was brought in, she'd spent a week in hospital, just not well, not well at all with um, chronic respiratory issues. And the parents brought her in for for a checkup with myself just to see if there was anything I could do to help her. And on this day, and I just wanted to interject with something here the importance of trusting your intuition. And in, in particular with children, intuition, it, that alarm bell rings and never, ever, ever ignore that feeling or that sense of something's not quite right here. And on that day with Mia, something was just not quite right. She she, she just, it didn't seem as straightforward as um, just her, her, her asthma playing up. So I did, I, didn't, I did my assessment of her and I just said to the parents, is, was anything else checked in hospital? Were, were all of her organs and all of her systems assessed? No. And interestingly, no, they hadn't at all. So we went back to basics, even though she'd been a patient for many years. I went back and did a complete thorough medical examination of Mia that day because I just felt something wasn't right. And on her abdominal examination, there was a big, hard mass sitting right under her diaphragm off to one side of her rib cage. And when I asked the parents, has anyone checked her tummy? Has anyone looked anywhere else other than her breathing? blank blank looks from the parents of no no not at all and I guess the other thing with with children is sometimes you have to really hold, keep keep your poker face because at this point I was really starting to feel very not not good about what I was feeling and what I was seeing so Mia was sent off for some scans it was Christmas Eve I'd put her in at the end of my list Because I just wanted to check on her before I went on leave for a a week or two weeks or whatever it was and just make sure she was okay. And clearly she wasn't. Luckily, we managed to get her in with the GPs on Christmas Eve, and she was having scans on on Boxing Day. And by the Monday, Mia's breathing had really progressively worsened. And at that time of year, as we know, it's very hard to, to see specialists and they ended up taking her to the children's hospital because there was a mass found in her kidney. She had a 10 centimetre tumour in her tiny two-year-old body and her lungs were failing and her liver was failing and her kidneys were failing and nobody had realised just how sick this little girl was and it wasn't just asthma. So this one and what me has been through and what her family's been through I guess is one that imprints on you forever because you you just don't want to miss anything and you just always want to trust that instinct and that little bell, that little thing, that little something that you feel as a practitioner when something's not quite right. And she couldn't speak. She couldn't tell us. And for years, Mia's still here with us, thankfully. She has nephroblastomatosis. So both her kidneys had tumours and the nephro ultimately is where tumors grow from so it's not an if it's when the tumors are going to come back and we've we I say we because I feel like we've I've been part of their journey for five years now and and what what they've been through and I've looked after Mia through her chemo and through all of the different things that she's been through and whenever she gets better she refuses to see me don't need gel don't need her don't want to see her but the thing is, when she asks for me, and sometimes a year would go past, she'd say, I need gel to ask for me. And every time now, three times, it's when the tumours have come back. So kids know, they understand their bodies more than we can possibly fathom how in tune they are with themselves.
0: So, yeah. It's, it's certainly a good point that you make there when it comes to intuition. When people can't communicate verbally, Often our gut is all we have. And Michael, one of our mentors at work, calls it the barking dog in your ear that doesn't stop. And I think it is really important to not, not so much overcare. I mean, we don't, we don't want to do unnecessary investigations and all those sorts of things and, and create more fear in parents. But you certainly do need to listen. I think stories like this are really powerful and really important for the impact that you've had on little Mia's life. I think there's a lot of people watching that won't forget that story either. Thank you for sharing.
1: No, that's okay. Like it's one, like I said, it still stays with me because you always think, what else could I have done? Could I have found it sooner? So you just, yeah, don't want to miss anything. So, as I mentioned before, when a a little person comes into the room with us to, to see us, we're working not with them but with the entire family dynamic and sometimes that can be brothers and sisters and mums and dads and grandparents it's interesting isn't it when you work with children as the different amount of energy that comes into our room and that that we are faced with when we're working with children and often i say to my guys when i'm when we when, we, when i'm mentoring say Person on the table and the treatment's actually the easy part. That's actually the bit that's so simple. It's all the rest of it that um, is the most challenging thing, I think, when working with children. And I think maybe this is possibly why, um, when you aren't as experienced, you don't feel as confident when a, when a child, especially a young child, comes in and they can't communicate with you when you're really very much relying on, on what, the, what's, what you're being told um, in your history. So the whole family dynamic is why I think working with children can be so very challenging. And I think the way we connect and the way we communicate with, with the child can really drive the way the treatment goes. <laughs> Sometimes it can be a very calm and peaceful and easy, easy kind of day. And other days, it just feels like you're going around in circles, you're chasing a child around the table or crawling around. I've been known to crawl around on the floor with toddlers because you have to be fluid, you have to be open to working in a way that you get what you need done, but it might not look like how we're taught at uni where your patient comes in, sits down, gives you their history, does their assessment beautifully, and then sits on the table and you can do your job. It's just, it's not like that with kids. And how you come into the space and how you come into the room can often have a really big, big impact on, on on how that goes. I've always said and I've always felt that children are our mirrors. They mirror how we are, basically. So if we've had a very crazy morning and we our head's in 5,000 other things and then we've come into the room to see our patient and we're, we're in, a, in, a, in a buzz, they feel it. And often that's when they bounce and they, they play off that. So I guess creating a space and a room where children feel safe somewhere that, uh, and this has been really challenging for me with COVID because my room, it, anyone, <laughs> any of the other practitioners that come in and use it that don't see children, uh, their patients often comment on how it looks like a, a toy shop because it's set up in a way that they feel comfortable to come in and play and touch and do what they need to. But with COVID, I've had to really, the rooms are not like that anymore. And a lot of my tools I had in my kit of helping kids feel safe and comfortable in the space. It's unfortunately not, we just, we're not able to do, do that as much with all the cleaning procedures and the touching. So thinking about ways that you can make your room feel Feel safe and calm and easy for the children to feel comfortable in is really important. But being creative in how you do that is yeah, with COVID has been has been very interesting. Not not being able to have our toys for the kids to play with. So I'm not sure how much of you have studied and looked into the impact of parenting and our parents' brains and how they have such a big impact on on a child and how it is that they then learn to become resilient, how they learn to face adversity in their own lives, how they learn to, to deal with challenges and they can be physical and emotional. And a lot of what I found is the physical and emotional. Sometimes it's very hard to separate those out. And so much of my day now, children are brought to me for more an emotional reason than a physical and I find that really fascinating because in my years of study, we just learn about the physical. But now my, when I have a child in front of me and the, the parents brought them in for anger management or excessive tantruming or issues with not wanting to eat or sleep, it's really fascinating that the underlying cause of a physical complaint is more often than not has an emotional anchor to it. And we really see that with children in particular. So I guess really being open to this and opening to understand where pain is. Pains the often, and we see that in pain science, pain's the last thing that we see when something's gone wrong. Pain's the body's last way of saying something's not right. And in children in particular, it's often the emotional state that they're coming in with that shows us something's not right. And then working out is it a physical or emotional, or is it both that, that's caused them to come in with whatever it is that they're presenting with? So increasing a parent's own resilience and emotional health has a huge impact on their child, on their child's. Dr. Martin Siegel's a leader in this space, and he talks about the, the mirror neurons in the brain and how as children develop, their brains mirror their parents' brain. And as parents become more aware and emotionally healthy, their children will will reap the rewards and, and move towards health as well. Because a lot of, and I think the amazing thing and the gift of working with children is their whole vitality and mission in life of their body is health, is to grow and to develop in health. It's not in disease. In a newborn, a fractured clavicle heals in seven days. How is that possible? That's the rate at which their cells are regenerating and renewing and their whole system is geared towards health. So why is it so important that we understand what conditioning is when we're working with children? Between zero and seven, children function from the subconscious mind. Anything that happens in those early formative years in this age group, any significant, what we call significant emotional events, and these can be different things that happen to them in that time, they form an imprint and it's stamped into their nervous system, into their subconscious, and that then shapes the way that they see things for the rest of their lives, But I find really, really quite daunting when you think about that. Anything that happens in those formative years, so in terms of how they deal with pain, how they deal with trauma, how they deal with injuries, anything that happens to them in that time is then shaped by the parents, the carers, the people in their inner world and what they're saying to them and how how the family member or whoever it is that cares for them deals with whatever it is that's happened to their child. And you can it, it's It's fascinating you often see it if a parent's hypervigilant or overprotective or has very strong reactions to, to things that happen that generally in childhood like tumbles and falls you see the kid falls and they look at their parent what's the parent's reaction to that? Do they freak out and panic and go running or do they let their child deal with what's happened and, and and be close and hold space and be there to support them, whether it's a cuddle or a hug or if they need a Band-Aid, what, how is it that they engage with that child when something happens to them that, de- that shapes this the child's nervous system and then how then they go on to deal with pain themselves. So it, that inner voice that we hear in our adult life, that's where it comes from all the way back when. And the incredible thing is it actually comes from even before that in pregnancy, the mother's ability to, the mother's levels of cortisol send signals to the, to the baby inside their tummy by the hypothalamus pituitary axis, and then sets the nervous system of the baby. And then how they then deal with stress hormones that go through their own bodies. So, so we talk about babies and children, but, There's so much more that happens before that um, in utero that can really impact on the way their own nervous system deals with pain and how they deal with with pain, sorry. (laughs) So the children's inner voice is shaped by the words we use and the things we say. It forms the basis of their blueprint of the world and how they navigate it. So what a role we have as practitioners in shaping Shaping the children that come in to see us and their brains and their nervous system in terms of what it is that we 're saying to them and how we 're making them feel in our room and what it is that we 're doing for them in, in that space when they 're seeing us so that they then have an empowered way of looking at their health or a disempowered way, and when we 're feeling empowered, regardless of age, obviously in zero to three year old before they 're verbal we can't we we don't know because they can't talk to us but it very much that voice and that subconscious mind is like a little sponge that sucks everything in and holds it and with neuroplasticity in the brain we know that anything can be changed any any neural pathway can be changed for the rest of our lives there's no time frame on neuroplasticity but it's so much harder to change and often it's not until something happens to us later in life And we have a chronic illness or we have a chronic injury and we realise that we probably need to work as much on our thought process around that and our healing as much as the physical to overcome it. So communication is key. And how do you do that in a non-communicative patient? Our eyes have such a powerful way of connecting with children. So often getting down at eye level, like simple things like that. And I'll often, I often sit on the floor because children feel safe. They don't like being up on a high table. They want to feel grounded and earthed like we all do. And often when we're in a a state of play, because often, oftentimes in my room, I'm on the floor playing or they're playing and I'm treating. So I'm helping create a safe space for them where they feel comfortable. And often it, with play when kids are engaged in play that's when they talk that's when they share that's when they give us those little gems and i see this with my own children if if i know something's going on with one of them we'll either draw or we'll color or we'll play with lego and that's when i can get out from the from them what's actually going on so i guess another another point in think outside the square, because children just don't come in and sit down and say, this is where it hurts and this is what I did and this is why. And in particular, with consent, so, so important that we ask when we're working with children, is it okay if I put my hands and teaching them? And I think that's a really important lesson in teaching consent from a very young age and knowing what's comfortable and what's not comfortable. And sometimes with with children that I treat, if my hands are in a place that they're not comfortable with and they're squirming around and they're trying to get away and they're being really vocal about not wanting to be there for whatever reason, they might be tired, they might be hungry or they just don't feel comfortable in that that clinical setting, I'll take my hands off and I'll say, you tell me, where would you like my hands? Where do you feel like you need my hands to be? Where would you like me to work? And it's never failed me. They'll say, here, this is where I need you, gel, Or they'll put their hands on their tummy and it might be completely away from where I wanna be and where I need to work, but trust them. They'll tell you, children are so intuitive and they will tell you where they want you to work. So this empowering our kids to the changes that we wanna see. So we need to embody the things that we want our, the children to see. And that's not just as a practitioner, but as a parent, if we want them to see the health, we have to really be careful in how we explain things to them, how we talk to them about pain or, or disease or whatever it is that they're in the room with us and really giving them, make helping them feel like they're in control of their bodies and that they're they have a, a say in what happens to them and how it is that we're going to work with them to get them feeling better. So oftentimes we're dealing, we're speaking directly to the child. There is permission from the parent, often needed with techniques and explaining. But so much of working with, with children is that to and from to and fro between them, you and the child, and you and the and the, the carer, the parent, whoever it is, that's brought them into the space and helping everyone understand why it is that they're there and what you're doing and what you're going to do about it. So one of my favourite quotes of all time is, people remember don't, don't remember what you say or what you did, but how you made them feel. And I guess that feeling, especially with children, is so important of feeling like they're in a safe space where you're there and you're listening and you're trying to understand what it is that, that's troubling them. As I said before, our our basic human needs to be heard, to be seen and to feel understood. God, if everyone just did that for everyone in life, there would be no war. (laughs) If we all had all those three things, it would be a much better place to live. So emotions, they're just that, they're energy in motion. And one of my most favourite quotes from A.T. Still, one of the founders of osteopathy is, As the branch is inclined, as the tree is inclined, the branch will grow. And what that means is the way that the body grows, whatever dysfunction happens, that's the way the body grows. And often with children and babies in particular, you lay them on the table and they go into their dysfunction pattern. They literally will show you this is where my dysfunction is. And that's why. Working with children is such a gift too because it, it's so much easier to get to the bottom of what actually happened and affected their... If they're missing milestones, as for example, with, with a baby, you can see why they're having trouble connecting their arms and their legs so that they can crawl. It's because of something that's happened on one side of the body. And it's not just physical things that can cause these dysfunctions. The same with emotional traumas, same with emotions, they do get trapped in bodies. And that's why with kids, oftentimes we're seeing behavior as a result of a dysfunction within their body. So just being really open to what it is that could be going on for that person, that little person that's causing them to behave in a certain way. When we talk about trauma, It can be physical and it can be emotional as well, like I mentioned. And I think in in the current time that we're living in and working in, the impact of of COVID in particular, I think we're all seeing, especially here in Victoria, I have to say, that impact and that flow and effect from what's happening to these kids and the constant lockdowns and the constant... um, isolation from their friends and family, I think we're starting to see the ripples of that more and more, especially this year, in terms of behaviour in those school-aged children, and oftentimes they're coming in with headaches or neck tension or posture-related dysfunctions as a result of homeschool and increased technology use but making sure that we're looking for other things that can be going on with them that hide under the surface and present physically. And I think mental health and in particular at this time is something that as practitioners, we're being faced with more and more. And it's something with, as you, in terms of scope of practice, making sure that we can, know when we need to refer out. But as allied health practitioners, often we're the first point of call for a lot of these patients and knowing that we can play a role in this. We definitely can be a support or someone that, that patient, young patients can trust and talk to and about what it is that they're feeling. So one generation of deeply connected, loving parents and practitioners We'd change the brain of the next generation and with that, the world. And what a world we live in right now and what an opportunity we have to help these young people that we're working with and how we're shaping their ability to, do, to deal with pain, to deal with disease, to deal with the things that they're faced with and that they're hearing about constantly in, in the world as a result of the situation we all find ourselves in. And I guess the impact, that's what worries me. What happens to these kids when they're teenagers, when they're in their 20s, 30s and into their lives? So much of what's happening right now has so much impact on their ability to see health. And I really hope um, I've helped give... Some insight into how we as as allied health practitioners can play such an important role in in shaping these nervous systems and dealing with these things into the future.
0: Thank you so much. That was so great. I've scribbled a whole lot of notes at the back and I I think I just wanted to reiterate some of the, the great points that you make and I think it's so evident now and the research is is pushing us towards this mind-body connection. And even though some of us in the manual therapy space, but a lot in allied health space, the connection with patients and building trust at any age is pivotal to the result and to the outcome. And the reality is, is that if we don't build that connection and if we don't build the trust at a really early stage, there's not going to be a second visit anyway so we're not going to get where we need to be and we're not going to help that patient move towards where they want to go and there's so many facets here obviously the child that we talked about and looking at things from their perspective which I love I love that notion of seen heard and understood being part of our seven human fundamental needs as a child they need that even more so and I think it to embrace the value and our position in the treatment room as you said of somebody who can actually make a difference in a very short period of time and that's just by opening our eyes so i love the concept of being able to look at the parents and how the parents behaviors and actions are mirrored within that child so not only doing the case history but just watching watching the environment watching the space watching the the actions and the reactions to those behaviors i found in my experience with children that often you can see a child who might be somewhat anxious and you do attach them rightly or wrongly to what might be a sort of a more neurotic parent and we desperately and deeply love our children in fact we love our nieces and we love our nephews and and all of, you know all the children that come into our life but it does make our position even more empowering because we do have the ability to make a change but we also don't want to miss things we certainly don't want to miss things either because to the people that are or the parents that are bringing their children in they're very very precious to them And so sometimes would you say, I guess the flip side of that is in your experience with parents, we can have some parents who are extremely grateful and extremely open and extremely attentive, but are there parents and, you know, how do you navigate, I guess my question is, the parent that is difficult or resistive to your advice because um, whilst, you know, this, this information is so valuable, even if we deliver it, even if it comes from the best place in our heart with the research and the evidence to support what it is that our management plan is going to be, how do you tackle the difficult patient and have you stopped seeing a child, for example, because of a response from a parent?
1: Yeah, it's a good question, Jade, and it is something that we don't see a lot of, but you do, you do get faced with pe- with parents that might be resistant to what it is that you're saying, or um, I work, I, I spend a lot of my day working with new mums and they can be very defensive. And if it, I guess, it comes back to language and using the type of language that we're using, and I guess coming from a place of not, you're not doing this, have you thought about this, or more suggestive in a way as. Rather than saying, make it, I guess it's really hard. Parents, we all struggle with with parental guilt and thinking that we've missed something or we're doing something wrong or we're not enough or we're not doing enough. And I guess as a practitioner, learning not to take that on. And often one of my mantras is not my monkey, not my circus. And I'm here giving you the, the best of me, my time, my advice, my my wisdom, And I'm doing everything I can to make sure I help whether someone takes that on or not, or chooses not to or is resistant to it. More often it's to do with, with their own insecurities, their stuff that's blocking them or preventing them from being able to be open to it. And it it requires a lot of patience as a practitioner and really staying calm and centered and grounded and just holding that space for them and, often the ones that give me the hardest time go on to become my most loyal patients because I, I hold space for all of the things they bring into the room. As we as I mentioned earlier, they just, yeah, with them comes everything else and their, their conditioning and their life experiences. So I guess just, Having that in the back of your mind and not taking other, other other people's stuff on, which which is hard. And some days when you have five in a row like that, you think, "Oh my god, what a day!"
0: And you know, building on that, we are generally as practitioners to find ourselves in this space, in this industry. We're very empathetic humans, and especially, I know more speaking for myself when it comes to children you do, you want to go that next level and you do want to go above and beyond, which I guess leads me to my next discussion point and question. That conditioning from zero to age seven, I found really fascinating. And we do, uh, we can appreciate the, the science behind neuroplasticity. When you see a child and in the room, for example, you've got a child in pain and you're seeing that parent's reaction to that pain and basically how the child is being managed is a reflection of that parent's reaction, how do we as practitioners interject with that education? Because that's somewhat outside our hands. Is that when you refer the parents off to a course or to, I mean, how do we, if that's much, much deeper than what we can actually do, because that's from years of behavioural patterns and mirroring, what is your advice there to a practitioner who thinks oh my who goes home and takes that home with them thinking i can't let this sleep i really want to help this child but to help this child i need to help the parents do you advise on courses or do you just stay involved in the care what what sort of uh, trajectory should we take in that instance
1: I guess before I answer that, I guess one simple thing <laughs> that I find really effective is often some, some children behave differently in the room when the parent's not there. And if I'm having that kind of dynamic happening, I'll actually say to the child, would you like mummy to sit in the waiting room while you come in today or daddy, whoever it is that's brought them? And they don't leave the clinic, like the, the parents in, in the space, but not actually physically in the room. And sometimes you get a completely different picture of what's actually going on when you separate that out. And often diagnostically, that helps because you can see how much of that is that parental influence on what's happening and how the, the child's behaving as a result of what's happening or is there no relationship? So that's what, sorry, I've taken a step back, but I find that really helpful. It is, and then
0: I, sorry, Tidra, it is a good point you make because I just wanted to build on that there. I know myself, it's not very often that I would broach that concept of getting the parent to wait outside, particularly with a four-year-old. And I know that a lot of practitioners would sit there and say, where are we legally positioned with that? Can you extend on that? Like, where where do we sit there legally?
1: Uh, I, I make it very clear they're not to leave the practice. They have to be there. And as long as the parent consents to that and they're okay with you having that time with the child in the room on your own, I I've never had an issue with that but I make it very clear they're not to leave they have to they have to physically be in the, in in the building and it's not often that I've had to do that but it's in those particularly challenging situations with some parents I I have um, I've got a, a a case I can share of a father with Asperger's who would be standing right here but right there, well over my shoulder while I'm examining and assessing and like completely battering my ear at, with a million questions where I'm trying to focus on what I'm doing. And I, I think I, I tried and tried to work through that. And that, that can be really challenging when you're trying to work with your patient and someone's just barrage of questions. And I, I guess feeling confident enough to say, is it okay if I go through this process uninterrupted so I completely focus on the child and be engaged with them and just so they feel safe with what I'm doing and not me trying to talk to you and do what I'm doing? Because when you're getting pulled in and out of it, kids don't like that. They don't like how that feels. They're kind of like, well, you're talking to them or to me? Or often that's when you're trying to explain to the parent that they run off and try and climb your table or open your blinds or whatever it is. Like they feel that chaotic, I guess the chaos of that so I guess feeling confident enough to say can we I promise you we'll, we'll talk about everything and you can ask, ask me any question you have I just need this space and this time to focus my energy and my attention and most parents respond to that they kind of go oh, oh they don't even realize that that's what they're doing and I think yeah a lot of kids actually really like that they're like oh you're focused on me this is about me it's not about mum asking you five thousand questions."
0: Yeah, it's, it's just, it, it's a it's a really good point to bring up that we do have that as an option in those instances, which is really good, which I guess, and then leads me to my final question. I loved the stuff that you were suggesting when it comes to play and getting down. I just, I know that that's what I do. You get down on the floor and, you know, you're marching like a soldier and then you can be a fairy next minute. And I think we have to be really adaptable when it comes to kids, but Also, we need to have a look at obviously things that engage kids. They love animation. They love anything that's over the top and over emotive. And sometimes you do need to put on that different hat that makes you likable to a child and want a child to want to be around with you. They love the wiggles. I've been prone to dancing and we have to get comfortable being uncomfortable around kids and, and doing silly things just to build that trust and engagement with a kid so I'd love from you what are what are some of the tactics you know particularly even in examination when it comes to children what are some of the the visuals or the stories that you'll use if you're trying to get a child to engage in flexion or extension or actually to I guess obviously we can perform it ourselves and get them to copy us but if we're wanting to watch and those sorts of things are there certain strategies that you use to help with movement and assessment when it comes to kids that some people watching could learn from
1: yeah for sure um often kids have a toy with them so i'll ask them if i can have a look at their toy and show and do the movements with the toy and if they can copy them and that often works well and it's not you especially at that assessment stage there's still sometimes they're still a little bit timid and a bit nervous so don't want your hands on them yet and it's a good way to ease into that you know I'll put my hand here on Teddy and look at Teddy can you do can you copy Teddy or using mum or dad in the room say if it were them can you turn and look and see what they're doing and poke your tongue out at them like just kids love to have fun and they love to be silly and I think that's the best part about working with kids you get to have fun with it as well um, and like you said just I don't find that uncomfortable at all I have I find being silly very easy but um if and I think when you love working with kids, they, they feel that and they, that really comes through and just not worrying about what anyone else thinks. And um, as soon as you, you just need that little in, as soon as you get that cheeky smile from them, you know you're in and they're going to listen to you and, and do what it is that they like. So observe, what have they come in? what How have they come in? Are they in a costume? Can you see they love Ninja Turtles? Like talk to them at their level about what it is that they're interested in and get really curious. And often I don't even start with the history. I'll ask some really random questions so that the child and I, we can connect and we can have something we play with them that we talk about that's outside of what it is that they're there, that they're, they are there for. And I will always ask with a, a child that can speak, do you know why you're here? And often, because so much, so often as a parent, they just come in and then they're just blah. They, it all comes out and you spend 10 minutes of the parent talking at you and the child's just sitting in the corner. So I think making them feel important and special and like that you're there for them and you really want to be there to help them and understand them. So creating that connection first, I think is really important. And often parents soften and they, they kind of breathe out and relax like, oh, she's 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 got this like they're going to talk to her they're going to behave and so many times like parents will say yeah there's no way they're going to get up on that table and do what you need them to do and then they look at me like I don't know how you did that and it's all about that initial that initial kind of connection you're making with that child
0: and I, I do agree if you are in a clinic and it's new or if you've just started out sort of do need to be prepared with props you need to have a teddy in the clinic or you know and it doesn't it can be gender neutral totally but you can have a toy that is going to resonate with a child whether it be something that's moving or you know something that even coloring books we've got stickers everywhere i'm into bribery when it comes with kids i certainly don't go delivering mollies to Everyone, but I've got to pack it in the cupboard because that can sort of be a little bit enticing. But stickers work really, really well. Colouring books, pens, all those sorts of things. I think you need to have them if you've got them there and you only use them once or twice a year because you're not in a pediatric clinic, they still come very much in handy when you need them rather than trying to pivot with a spiky ball or something like that, which is also good. We we use those at the clinic, rolling spiky balls around and uh, all of all of those sorts of things. But I think it's se- certainly important to find your inner child when it comes to treating a child yourself. And I guess that would be my last question. If you are a practitioner that is not overly goofy or is a little bit shy and not outlandish and doesn't want to do all these stupid things like dance around the room like a monkey and get down low, it, what's the suggestion for but I mean, not not to say, well, they should just stay away from treating children. But is there other ways where people who aren't so extroverted, I guess you would say, and it, it doesn't have to be extroverted introverted thing, but somebody who doesn't like being so animated, what are some other strategies that you could use with children? Is it just simply just talking to them?
1: Yeah, I think so, absolutely, and just just trying to find a, something that you can engage them with. That's what I was saying before, just something that you can connect with them with and kids are amazing as soon as you you open that door they just give you so much and some kids don't want to talk and I with what's been happening with not being able to have so many toys in the room just because of the the cleaning nature I've had to be really creative in what what else can I give them or what else can I do and blue tack goes a long way because they can take it home with them or you can throw it out but sometimes when you just keep their hands busy their mouths open and they share So it doesn't have to be goofy and silly at all. Um, I have a pig cup that I drink my cups of tea out of. And sometimes if I can see they're giving me nothing, I'll just say, excuse me, I just need to to drink out of my little pig cup here. And they just, (laughs) just be, think outside the square. My kids, they're actually really, um, they read us. And if you're nervous, often they feel that too. And And that's what I was talking about earlier on, like, really be in check with how you come into the space because they yeah. will mirror that. And if they're not giving, if they're being resistant, pivot, try something different, try something else. Yeah. And sometimes I end up treating out in the Pilates studio because some kids don't like being in a closed room. We, we got, you know, just really being creative with how things should look and then how things go and, and being okay with that.
0: Yeah. And look, I know myself, I've been almost two decades, I've been working with babies and children and you can always learn something from them, always. And you can always learn something as a practitioner. And I think that's why webinars like this and talking to practitioners that are a little bit more experienced and also answering questions to those that have their concerns, we've always got something to learn. We've always got something to do better. And so we should be when it comes to our children and other people's. So... Thank you so much for your time today. That was fabulous. I could talk about kids all day. Uh, So my little three-year-old this morning, I probably wouldn't have said the same thing about him. (laughs) uh, Yes, we we did have an interesting morning this morning. But um, how can, is somebody watching today or some of our, you know, Growth Rx community, how can we find you? How can we connect more with you on, on this space? I know you've got some amazing courses out there and stuff that you're doing with Happy Hearts. How do we find you?
1: Um, I, Facebook is probably the easiest. You can private message me through messenger. You can send me an email to sports and spinal group or a message to our social media there. And, um, my happy hearts as well. I've got a little tribe, a beautiful community of people that I work with and that their happy hearts, the program that I've been working on and, and launched last year. And, um, yeah, there's so many amazing things that, um, that I'm working on that I'm really passionate about so please like reach out I love hearing from from practitioners and any way that I can help or support or guide um, I've just developed some affirmation cards for kids so they're, they're coming so they're I find I'm really excited about we're going to be putting them into the clinic as well and another way we can empower kids with Um, how they feel and how they see themselves and sometimes I'm actually thinking about using the cards in the room and getting the kids to pull a card from the deck and you know that can be the focus of what we're talking about that day so just yeah like I said social media is probably the easiest way to find me Um, and yeah please contact me message me love to hear from you love to hear some feedback on on today and anything else that we can we can help with because this space truly is magical i love working with kids and i think we're like i said we're we're so lucky when we get to work in this space and what we can like you know the scope is endless
0: I, i couldn't couldn't agree more and those affirmation cards it sound like an amazing idea and i know you've got some courses for some parents and those sorts of things as well. So certainly a great resource to be a practitioner also included in that, I guess, education space when it comes to parents as a referral basis for other practitioners who are looking to be able to pass parents on for that sort of information. So hopefully we can send a a few people through to you. Thank you so much again for today. Thank you, everybody who tuned in this afternoon. We will be back again in a couple of weeks. Thanks. Bye. Bye.